Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. As sportswomen and conservationists, we do more than hunt and fish. The complete sportswoman can skin a deer, land a burly trout, navigate in the wild, and she knows her game commissioners and politicians, knows wildlife laws, defends all wildlife, advocates on their behalf, and teaches others these skills. Artemis embodies the definition of the complete sportswoman and sees it as our duty to use our platform to promote and teach this philosophy. Do you have or want these skills in this network? Visit artemis.nwf.org and join us today. And thank you for protecting our wild world. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I am your host, Marsha Brownlee, and our co-host today is Becca Aceto. Hi, Becca. Hi, Marsha. So excited to be here. Yeah. Um, it's always a good, so we're recording this on a Friday, um, and it's always, it just feels like a really strong way to end the week is to, is to meet up with you and have a great conversation. So I'm excited that this is um, on my Friday to-do list. Yes, me too. Our guest today is Vanna Bacadori. Hi, Vanna. Hi, Marsha. Hi, Becca. How are you? Doing great. Really excited for our conversation. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Absolutely. I'm excited to share some of um, some things with you yeah. on our let's, topic. Yeah. Let's dive right in with our, uh, our I, I, I was going to say our warm-up question, and it's funny that our warm-up question is about a freezer, but tell us what's in your freezer. I love this question. When I first read it, I just, I probably spent more time thinking about this question than <laughs> all the rest. That's awesome. <laughs> and I thought, man, what a great way to like really get to know somebody by what's in their freezer. So, um, all right. So this is what is in my freezer currently. I have a couple of white-tailed deer, a couple of antelope. I have a mountain lion backstrap that someone had given me, not that I had hunted myself. Um, I have white-tailed deer, Italian sausage. I have some smoked rainbow trout. I have some antelope cheddar broth. And um, I also have beaver and muskrat glands <laughs> in my freezer. And I have a deer. <laughs> I have a deer and antelope liver that I'll uh, eventually turn into Braunschlager, which is uh, liverwurst. And I have some deer fat that I will render later on this winter for tallow and then use that to make soap. So well, that's, fantastic. that's what's in my freezer. Yeah. Thanks for asking. I have several follow-up questions. Um, tell us okay. more about the glands. Because <laughs> this is a first. Like Becca said, that's a podcast first. <laughs> All right. So um, they are from beaver and muskrat that I have trapped uh, a couple of years ago. And I've um, you know, made use of the hides, but I saved these glands. Um, I'm actually using them to trade, um, for other trapping equipment. Um, I trade with trappers and give them the glands. They make lures and baits out of it. Um, and then in return, I either get 
you know, a, a jar of lure from them or some other equipment. So um, they're my barter, um, if you will. That's <laughs> so that's what they're in there for. And they've just been sitting in there. I haven't done anything with them for a couple of years. I need to get them out and get them in the hands of a trapper. So <laughs> that's fascinating. Yes. I have other follow-up questions about the liver. Um Mm-hmm. because I have uh, a kind of a liver conundrum that I've been working through since I started hunting because it's this giant, beautiful uh, yes. organ, organ that um, I'm not particularly fond of uh, and feel like I want to make the most of it. And so I'm always looking for recipe ideas. Okay, so um, I highly recommend making Braunschweiger out of it. Um, it is really good. And I've made it a few times. Um, if I do it this year, this will be the first time I've done it on my own. Um, I've found a great um, Braunschweiger mentor, if you will. <laughs> and I've made it several times with this friend of mine who's done it quite a bit and has a really excellent recipe. Um, I'm not too fond of eating liver just straight up with liver and onions, but like any good sausage, whatever your game meat is, you're also mixing in a lot of pork and pork fat. So, mm, um, right. but it has a really good flavor and it's great for throwing in your backpack for um, pack trips and uh, hunting trips. And so, yeah, I highly recommend that one. Excellent. I will have to dig into that. Um, yeah. And learn more about it. Get my own mentor. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, Becca, do you have any freezer questions? Well, now I'm going to think differently about all the litters I have because I just put them in the pile for the dog, but yeah. maybe I'll second guess that from now on. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is amazing. I mean, when you're field dressing your animal, there's um, several organs. If I could just go down the rabbit trail for a minute, there's yeah. several organs that I'm just completely fascinated by and the kidneys are probably top on my list I just love those little I mean they're just discreet little packages smooth and just beautiful and in particular I seek out those kidneys because they are wrapped in very pure fat and that's the fat that I harvest um, to uh, render into tallow and then I use that to make soap um, and so I'm always seeking out those kidneys and, and also it's, you can tell the fitness level of the animal, um, based on how much fat is around those kidneys. For instance, this year with the drought conditions and vegetation was not at its prime. Um, the kidneys that I harvested from my animals this year did not have a lot of, um, fat on them. So oh, that's scary going into the winter, I would think. Right, right. Exactly. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Oh, gosh, that was not as easy a question to answer <laughs> as the freezer question. Right. <laughs> um, I would say, first and foremost, I am a wildlife biologist. It's hard for me to separate my job, uh, job title, which is really who I am, not what I do. So I guess I would say I'm a wildlife biologist. And then Within that, um, I'm definitely also a Luddite. I, um, you know, all these technologies today just go right over my head. I'm still a paper map person, uh, paper and pencil, 
you know, I have a, a GPS, which is modern technology, but it's vintage, like 2006, and and uh, I don't want to switch to anything more modern than that because I won't be able to figure out how to use it. Um, yeah, I guess I'm kind of a homesteader wannabe as well. I live right smack in Butte, America, but I've got chickens and a garden and like I said earlier, I, I make soap out of my um, deer and elk fats. And, um, so that's kind of a big part of who I am. I, I like to do things the hard way, I guess. I don't have a dryer. I hang my clothes up. I heat my house with wood, with a wood stove and I love gathering firewood. So um, I guess those things define me. Um, and then I also like to go on what I call adventures. And that could be something as simple as just hiking up a ridge on a Saturday afternoon, or uh, a few years ago, a friend and I went to um, Barrow, Alaska, and we helped some Eskimos uh, butcher a whale that they had just harvested. And so everything in between. Um, I don't like to sit still. And um, as my friends and family will tell you. <laughs> so, so I guess a kind of in a nutshell, those that's who I am. I'm curious what related to sort of the, the um, homesteading wannabe that you mentioned and kind of hunting and fishing in particular. Is there anything that you're focused on learning in those trades right now? Oh, constantly. I mean, I'm constantly like just trying to improve my skills in um, making meat products. Uh, you know, recently I um, made a batch of smoked fish and that was only the third time I've done that. And, um, you know, just ways to um, uh, preserve my meat and put up meat and vegetables and whatnot. And I love just securing my own food. I just love that whole aspect of it. I went ice fishing with a couple of folks the other day and they said they go all the time. And I said, boy, you must have a lot of fish in your freezer. And they're like, nah, we just do catch and release. And I thought in my mind, what a waste. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and catch and smoke. <laughs> so, um, I mean, there's always skills that I want to learn um, like with um Hunting, you know, I'm trying to get proficient with a recurve bow so that I could, uh, you know, use that as a tool to hunt with. Um, You know, just I'm getting ready to buy a little piece of property that actually I'm calling it my retirement homestead and will eventually build a house on it. And I want to build a, a green home and So there's a lot of skills that are going to come associated with, you know, constructing my own um, home. Um, So just hand skills and, you know, mental, mental skills combined with my, my hands. I mean, that's what I love. So. Becca, did you, I I can, I can hear you vibrating (laughs) a little bit over here. Did you have any follow-up questions? I just feel like between um, whale and chicken and recurve bow and ice fishing, there's so many things that I have questions about right now. <laughs> um, the first yes, some might voice. say ADD with that. Oh, no. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it that. I would call it um, just intense like curiosity. Utilizing your time. Yes. 
efficiently in a way that I don't think very many people do anymore. Um, it's just amazing to hear about all the skills that you're like adding to your repertoire. It's incredible. And these are things, I don't know, I think so much these days about how people are trying to do things that are of some sort of like professional value, right? Always trying to add to your resume and build your portfolio. And these are just things that are valuable to know being a human, you know, sure, maybe you can't put like smoking fish on a resume, but that is so valuable, just like at this deep, like in like this deep level. Um, And those types of experiences, I mean, the whole buying property and just sort of having that blank slate, I'm super excited to hear about how that goes for you over the next few years, because that's really exciting, I think, to have that opportunity to build something on your own with all these skills Mm. that you've amassed. Thank you. Yes, I'm definitely looking forward to that. And the way I look at it is I have eight years to retirement. So I have eight years to really plan out this homestead and build it up um, the way I want. And and my retirement plan in simple terms is um, just spend more of my daily time securing my basic needs. Uh, that just really excites me. <laughs> I'm quite simple. <laughs> well, we talked earlier. So, uh, you and I have had the pleasure of doing a number of work parties together um, through Artemis. And so, uh, you know, we talked before this podcast started about continuing those work parties. But I think you should also utilize our network to help you build your house because I know those are skills <laughs> that several of us would be interested in, in, in learning. So, yeah, don't discount that network. Oh, well, don't put that out there lightly because I probably will take you up on that. I didn't. (laughs) I didn't put it out there lightly. And I know that I would be in and I am, I'm assuming Becca would be as well. Oh gosh, that would be wonderful. Uh, so you mentioned your love of adventures, and uh, I, I'm going to segue into what we uh, are gathered together here to talk about today, which is one of your adventures. Um, and I would love for you to set us up by talking a little bit about um, pronghorn in Montana and sort of the history of of collared pronghorns in Montana. Yes. So um, part of my job as a wildlife biologist for Fish, Wildlife, and Parks is I basically have a corner of Montana, Southwest Montana, that I've been assigned to kind of manage the wildlife within that corner. Um, The main focus is on uh, game animals, but I I say that with a big asterisk because really the main focus is on habitat and all wildlife that uses that habitat is included in that. So, um, you know, for instance, I manage two wildlife management areas, Fleecer and Mount Hagen, and, and we've been doing a lot of different habitat projects um, on both of the WMAs um, that are to the benefit of all wildlife. So, um, But there's always occasion where we want to know, we want to go a little bit deeper in our knowledge of uh, local herds or a local population of wildlife. And so um, one example of that are the pronghorn that winter down on Horse Prairie and west of Dillon, and then a portion of that wintering herd migrate up through the Big Hole Valley in the summertime and um, make it all the way up to the Mount Hagen Wildlife Management Area. So it does tie into some of the habitat work I've been doing lately 
um, but also just the general knowledge of wanting to know more about that migration route and um, that population in general. And um, I had prior knowledge, uh, anecdotal, just from my own observations that this portion of the the wintering herd down at Horse Prairie migrates up to Mount Hagen, um, but I didn't know much more beyond that. So uh, three years, three winters ago, two years ago, we started capturing um, adult does and putting GPS collars on them. And we programmed those collars to collect locations every hour. And so that's a, a huge amount of um, geographic locations that we're getting per animal on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. Um, and each of those animals are wearing those collars um, for three years. And so we're just gathering a ton of data. Um, some of the driving questions we had was with this wintering herd, where all do they migrate to when it comes springtime and where are their fawning areas and where is their summer range? And then what are their potential barriers to movements, um, both on their seasonal ranges and to and from seasonal ranges? Um, so in the first year, it was like already the data and the effort started to pay for itself because we quickly saw on winter range where there was a lot of potential um, semi to impermeable fences on their winter range. And winter time is tough enough the way it is. Uh, it requires a lot of calories to uh, stay warm and for adult does that are pregnant, you know, for the, the maturation of their fetus. And so um, the last thing they need to do is burn on necessary calories trying to get across a fence um, or get underneath the fence or get around the fence. Um, so from that first winter, we were able to identify 30 to 40 miles of fences on their winter range in Forest Prairie um, that probably could stand to be modified to make them more permeable for um, pronghorn movements and also, you know, it's winter range for mule deer and for elk as well. And, um, you know, so it would benefit multiple species. So that's where um, this partnership sprung up between uh, Fish and Wildlife Service and the BLM and Fish, Wildlife and Parks and state land and private landowners. And then the National Wildlife Federation came in and hired a coordinator um, to oversee all these fencing projects. And um, Simon has done an excellent job with that. Uh, last year, we had a goal, I believe, of 15 miles of modified fences to make them more wildlife friendly. Um, and either modification or where feasible, where possible, um, remove those fences. And that goal was met last year, um, got, I believe it was uh, 15 miles of fences um, that were, again, either removed or improved uh, for wildlife passage to make that easier. Um, and I also wanna just put a, a shout out to the landowners um, that have been working cooperatively with us uh, to get this work done. Um, that's key to this whole thing. A lot of these fences are on private land and um, we just were able to work with those folks 
what are the common goals, you know, what are the, the needs that they have for um, keeping their animals where they need them, the cattle, um, and then where can we make some some modifications that, that suit the needs to move their cattle or retain their cattle, but also allow for wildlife to move across a little bit more freely. So that's been a super project and we'll continue with that um, for the next couple of years to try to tackle more of those 30 to 40 miles that we've identified. Um, so that was the results from just from the, the first couple of months of the study. And then um, we've had two years now where we've been able to see where these collared does go during the migration. And in the first year, um, we fortunately had, unbeknownst to us, um, captured and collared the doe that made that long migration all the way up from Horse Prairie to Mount Hagen Wildlife Management Area. And, you know, just in linear miles, that's probably a good 90 miles that um, this particular doe and whoever was with her in the group covered. Um, the second year that we captured, we were able to get a handful more. You know, we don't know when we're we're grabbing does on winter range where they end up in the summertime. Um, but we were fortunate that we got, I think, six more captured and collared last year that also made that migration all the way up to Mount Hagen. And then there's several, I call it the bus stop theory. You know, there's, if you look at like the central route um, between Horse Prairie and Mount Hagen, and then there's all these offshoots um, at various points where antelope are getting off to go to various summer ranges. And throughout the Big Hole Valley, there's probably four main summer ranges and then the, the farthest most one being Mount Hagen. Um, so then the, the next thought in my mind was, okay, we have identified potential projects, fencing projects on the winter range. What about on this long migration that goes up through the Big Hole and ends up on Mount Hagen? So I got the uh, brilliant or ridiculous idea, depending on how you look at it, of tracking um, that, of just basically following the, the same tracks that um, those collared does took um, to make that migration. And um, and my same friend who went to Alaska with me and helped me butcher uh, a whale <laughs> with Eskimos up in the Arctic, um, was game for coming on this adventure with me as well. So we started on Horse Prairie and um, we it got half of the migration route covered. We made it to um, uh, to Wisdom. So we covered about 55 miles. Um, the second half of the journey is yet to take place, but I am hoping to do it this summer. So if either of you want to go on a trek, um, you are more than welcome to join me. And um, it was incredibly informative. I mean, just to put boots on the ground, you know, I've seen all this country from the road. It basically parallels Highway 274 for most of the way. And, you know, as I've driven from Wisdom to Dillon, you can see all this country. Um, but it's not the same as when you're out there just one foot in front of the other and deciding which sagebrush to weave around and, um, you know, how to get across a ditch or, you know, just 
trying to avoid too many rocks or, um, you know, badger holes or whatever. So um, that was incredibly informative in and of itself, just seeing, you know, this pathway, like, why did they, why did she go here? Why didn't she drop down on that side? Why did she, you know, go up and around that? And um, there were a few places on um, when I, plotted her um, locations and her route. Uh, there were a couple of places where she circled around for a little bit instead of, instead of just making a linear movement. And when we explored those places on the ground, we found that that's where a rancher had placed a salt block for mm. their cattle. And, you know, these animals were just taking advantage of that being, you know, extra minerals on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest things that I kept my eye out for were potential um, impediments to their movements or uh, things that might slow them down. And the main thing being uh, fence crossings. And that was really eye-opening um, because in that 55 miles, I think we ended up with 42 fence crossings. So pretty much, you know, one uh, fence every mile they have these antelope encounter on their migration route um, to get to their fawning countries and um, it, you know for <clears throat> antelope or pronghorn I mean their biggest uh, need is no fence obviously is the best case scenario um, but they prefer to go under a fence than to jump over it they have the capability of jumping but that's not their normal inclination so really having that bottom wire raised up 16, even better, 18 inches off the bottom is really important. So every time we came to a fence, we would uh, measure the, the height of the top wire and the height of the bottom wire and um, make notes on whether you know this would benefit from a modification project. And so basically, you know, we now have the start of our next projects once we complete the ones um, that have been identified on the winter range. So we can start working with landowners along the migration route um, where we've identified fences that uh, are in need of either bottom wire being raised, um, the top wire being lowered would be more for elk jumping over, um, and in some cases moose as well throughout that country. so it was incredibly informative and um, certainly not without its, um, you know, mishaps, uh, trying to get over and under barbed wire um, all day long. <laughs> so, uh, I think I had to replace my sleeping pad and a shirt and a couple other <laughs> pieces of gear that now have nice rips in them from barbed wire. But, um, but yeah, so it was, that was, I think five days we were out there and probably the most valuable five days I've spent on the job in a long time. So that's, it's amazing. Do you have any sense of, um, well, I guess two questions, any sense of how many antelope convene on that winter range? Yes. So there are several hundred and what we've since learned is, um, since we've been collaring, our initial thought was that, um, Horse Prairie was their main winter range, but now we're discovering through movements of some of the other collared does that um, they will 
uh, move back and forth. Some of them will between uh, just west of Dillon, so over Badger Pass and in that kind of Argenta and frying pan area west of Dillon. Um, and then also uh, Horse Prairie and Bannock Bench. So all three of those areas are where that population spends its time in the wintertime. So. And, and when they move from their when like do they take the same route every year so far they, that's yeah. what mm -hmm, that's what we're seeing at least up through the big hole um so when they leave even the ones that um were wintering over west of town west of dillon it seemed like they uh, kind of met up on the bannock bench and kind of regrouped there prior to taking off for their spring migration. Um, and then once they took off, they all followed the same route. And so they go up and over Carroll Hill, um, which is a huge bottleneck. And we're currently working um, through this partnership that I spoke of earlier. We're working with um, some landowners on Carroll Hill um, to do some fence modifications there and also some habitat work, some conifer removal um, from the sagebrush and the grasslands because Carroll Hill is showing to be just a, it, it's it's a, a bottleneck for a lot of critters that migrate through, not just the antelope making their way into the big hole, but we also have collar data um, that Idaho has very graciously shared with us, Idaho Fishing Game. Um, on collared uh, mule deer that winter over on their side of the hill and then migrate into southwest Montana in the spring. And they go over Carroll Hill as well. And then um, uh, another project that I have going, we have some collared uh, sage grouse hens. And we had um, one hen leave the Big Hole Valley and winter in Horse Prairie and then flew over Carroll Hill. So even though she was flying, she still went over Carroll Hill and then stopped um, for a short period of time to feed along in the sagebrush there. So, so that area, you know, lit up to us as an area that is in need of conservation um, projects and fencing and um, habitat work right there. So, um, yeah. And, and then, of course, I lost track of your original question. <laughs> so. uh, if they, yeah, no, it, I think you answered it. Oh, it the was same just, trail. Yeah, if they say, if, if, because you mentioned that um, at a certain point, they'll, they'll divide off on their return to the summer range. Um, and I yeah. was curious if they, if it's like, you know, it's this big antelope convention and then they disperse back into their, um, their summer range in the same area every year. It sounds like yes. yes. So, you know, when you look at the movement maps for the past few years, it really does look like a bus line with various stops. And those stops are very specific um, each year. You know, they're they are identical one year to the next. And and part of that is dictated by where the sagebrush habitat is, but also um, some of it is not. I mean, they have, there's a huge swath of sagebrush and they're still choosing to cross right here. One of the, um, the things that I'm really excited for this year uh, when I get out there to finish the second half of that trek is where they are crossing the Big Hole River. And again, for the past two years, they 
seem to be keying in on this one particular area. And I've got to imagine that that's where the river is shallowest Mm -hmm. in June, which is sometimes when you have the highest water coming down through there. That's scary. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't do that. Yeah, right? (laughs) Right. So I'm curious to see what it is about that particular point, because that's their common crossing point right there. So... Um, so there, it does not appear to be random movements. It, it appears that they have been doing this migration for a heck of a long time and they really have it dialed in and does pass that knowledge on to their fawns and generation after generation. And, um, you know, there's always some errant movements away from that main trek, that main travel corridor, but for the most part, they all seem to be going uh, following a, a very similar path year after year, and spring and fall. I mean, they're they're just come fall, they turn around and just come right back on the same track. Mm-hmm. So. I'm curious. And, I am... Do you think that? Do you think that in the past? I'm. I have a. I have Google Maps up while we're having this conversation. <laughs> of course, so you it's do. like super, this is an incredible conversation to have while you're looking at the map. But is there? Um, so I guess it's kind of hard to explain geographically if you've never been there, but the Big Hole Valley is this big wide open place that probably historically was fairly good wintering ground before it was, um, you know, so partitioned off with private parcels. Is there any reason why they wouldn't winter there instead of Horse Prairie? Um, elevation probably is the main thing. And I, I, I'm not sure that it would have been winter ground. It's not, it's summer range for um, elk, it's summer range for mule deer, and, you know, in current times, it's definitely summer range for antelope. Um, You know, I guess I, I, you know, none of us really know if you go back far enough um, whether pronghorn would have wintered there or not, but um, it is a little bit higher elevation and then horse prairie is. And so I'm guessing that um, it's not any land use um, or anthropogenic causes that, you know, have rendered a switch from summer range, you know, winter range to summer range. That's yeah. just my so like educated guess. Step. Yeah, horse prairie would be that next step down for them into better winter range. Okay, interesting. Yeah. I imagine, I imagine as you were following their path that there were probably points along with the, with the, you know, fence row every mile or so that you could see the very specific spot where they were able to navigate around that obstacle. Yes. Sometimes we were, I mean, sometimes it was pretty obvious where there was a low spot and it was kind of dug out underneath that indicated, you know, this is, this is the exact point where animal after animal goes under this fence. And we would even find, and we were looking for those spots by looking for hair on the barbed wire. Um, And then other times we did not um, find that. And it could be that we, you know, we were off by a hundred feet. We didn't look far enough on either end of the fence line for that. Um, Or it could be that they just, uh, those were a wider dispersal area. You know, there wasn't one particular um, stretch of the fence that they all went under. So, um, but we did look for those, um, 
because it's just further, I mean, we know that they got across the fence um, in those areas. And, and that's why we had the GPS collars programmed for one hour. Um, you know, it eats up battery life the more often you have them, uh, the GPS locations uh, gathered and saved. But we wanted that finer scale resolution. And our thinking was, you know, if they're spending less than an hour trying to get across something, then it's not too much of a barrier. I mean, it's still a barrier. Mm -hmm. But if they're spending more than an hour and we could see them standing in one spot or going up and down a fence line for multiple hours in a row, then that's a barrier. Pretty that's obvious. Fascinating. I love, I mean, because it is such a broad, I mean, 90 miles is with, an, with a fence obstacle about every mile is a huge um, puzzle to kind of piece out what the priorities are. And I love the tools that it's obvious are being implemented, like the, the frequency of the data and the, you know, walking the landscape to, to actually lay eyes on it and gather information. I, I think it's just really cool to hear about the implementation of those tactics to determine priorities. Yeah. And I have to say, too, again, a good shout out to the landowners because, you know, I had to call and get permission from, I'm going to say somewhere between 20 and 30 landowners. Um, and just about everybody was very gracious and willing to let me go across their property, knowing that I was, you know, following the antelope migration. And, and you know, if anything, it's they were probably thinking, honey, all you needed to do is talk to me. I could tell you where they might be. That's true. Yep. Yep. They <laughs> know, know very well. Fancy <laughs> <laughs> um, but they were very um, gracious and generous with uh, granting me permission to go across their property. Um, so um, a huge shout out to them. It's wonderful. Yeah. Did any of them come out and meet you while you were crossing their property? Oh, yes. One, one man, and it was perfect timing. He knew we were coming across and that we would be making a beeline from his property straight to Jackson Hot Springs. And he met us at the <laughs> side by side and took us into town. We were very, very happy about that. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that was on day three and we were like badly in need of a soak and refreshments at that point. So. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the side by side and the transportation is, is, is generous enough, but did he happen to bring you a cold beverage as well? <laughs> no, but he delivered us to cold beverages. There you so. go. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's lovely. Yeah, it was great. Um. And kudos to you for, for for plotting that hot spring soak right in the into the trip. That's um, oh, that's really you know good the adventuring. antelope they go right behind it, so it really wasn't a diversion um, from the the track we were on. It really was not. I promise you, because <laughs> <laughs> they they just migrate right behind, probably two hundred yards from the hot springs. So it was perfect. Yep. Uh, we are going to take a quick break to hear from our partners. We'll be right back. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. 
Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. South Dakota is expanding pheasant hunting's horizons and giving sportswomen a greater voice in the field. The connection to nature, the adrenaline of the hunt, the satisfaction of eating the game you harvest. Hunting is our shared legacy. Everyone is welcome to enjoy it. Go to HuntTheGreatestSD.com to hear stories from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. That's HuntTheGreatestSD.com. South Dakota, sportswomen welcome. Okay, welcome back. Uh, so one question I have, I'm curious in this, uh, I, I guess in your deep history of uh, adventuring and outdoors life, is there anything on this journey following the pronghorn path that surprised you? Um, you know, just the sheer distance of it. Um, I really didn't comprehend that until I started slogging along that route myself. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, a pronghorn, they appear so dainty and in some ways they are, there's not a lot of muscle mass on them. They're small build, but my gosh, like I have such respect for, uh, for them, even more respect now knowing a little bit about what migration looks like to them. Um, and I only made it halfway. I mean, I couldn't even do the whole thing. So, uh, they just, they're, it's amazing to me, the ground that they cover. And, you know, just as I was out there, we had some, um, coyote sightings and, you know, black bear and it's, it's springtime and these does are very pregnant and, you know, I just, all the the factors that can weigh against some of these critters on the landscape, but yet it's all, it is all intertwined. It's all part of the big circle. And, um, but it's really amazing just to kind of see one step after the other, um, you know, what, what they're encountering out there and the landscape that they are covering and the knowledge that they must have. I mean, looking at their the map of their movements, it is so linear with a few exceptions. Um, you know, the first several days they are covering the ground that I covered plus probably 20 or 30 more miles. And then, then it seems like there's a feeding area that they get to a little further down the river. Um, and then they, they kind of take the last two days or so at a more leisurely pace and are feeding more often before they show up on the summer range. Um, but you know, it just to appreciate that, that ancient drive and knowledge that they have to get somewhere was pretty impressive to me. So it sounds like in hearing you describe it that way, it sounds like it takes them, I mean, are they doing it in a couple of weeks? Like what's, how long does it take them? Oh, you know, I'll have to look closer at the data for specifics, but it doesn't take them more than a week to 10 days. Um, and again, the, the first, um, the first two thirds 
uh, or more of that 90 mile migration, they are just booking it, Mm. Um, just traveling in a straight line. And um, it seems like they're not even, you know, taking much time to stop and rest. Um, They're just covering that ground. Yeah. So are they, because we did a series last year with the Monteith shop out of, well, I guess it's now two years ago, with the Monteith shop out of Wyoming, Wyoming talking about the mule deer migration. And they, mm-hmm. we had an episode specifically talking about the green wave and the mule deer following the spring green up on their way back to their summer range. But it sounds like pronghorn may not pay too much attention to that if they're just kind of, if they're beelining it. You know, I I didn't gain a strong insight on that. Um, And of course, I didn't do it at the same time they are. And that would make a difference to kind of really see that in June when they're covering that ground. Um, You know, if it is a green wave that they are riding. Um, And also, you know, we'll have one more year data. Um, we're, We're getting ready to capture a few more and replace some of the collars that we lost last year. And so we'll have uh, another year or two of data. And it would be interesting to see if that pattern holds of, you know, linear from Horse Prairie, just north of Wisdom, and then they start kind of dawdling around in there. Um, And if so, and, and that's, those will be spots that when I cover this second half of the migration route, you know, I've made note on the map to look at all these spots where they're kind of going around in circles instead of going in a straight line. What is it about those areas? Um, Is there a certain type of vegetation uh, difference there? Um, Or is it another salt lick area? Um, Or does that pattern not hold up in years three and four? I mean, that'll be interesting to see as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And to, follow that migration probably earlier in June, closer in time to when they're making that migration to, I mean, they're, they're making it more, in, uh, you know, late April, early May. So. Interesting. Becca, do you have any questions? Um, I have a few quick questions and some are probably some I have longer answers than others, but Anna, you mentioned um, that they do have to cross the river at some point. So I'm guessing they also have to cross the highway. Um, is that, do you have a, have you kind of honed in on a spot that they cross? And is that, are there any impediments there? Or does it seem like um, it's a safe spot for them to be doing that? Right. Fortunately, you know, the highway in the, the Big Hole Valley is not that heavily traveled. So I don't mm-hmm. think that really poses too much of a barrier for them. Um, you know, I could speak to myself, uh, like in, in, throughout the month of April, I am in the big hole quite a bit and often coming into the wisdom area, you know, before light, cause I'm checking sage grouse legs. Um, and to me, the harbinger of spring are two things. One, the arrival of sandhill cranes in the big hole valley and two, the arrival of the first migrating antelope up through the valley. And in the past, I would see them and I would be excited enough just to see them. But as I'm doing my early morning sage grouse lex surveys, but now I'm even more excited because it's become a little more personal to me. I know some of these (laughs) animals, these does, and I don't mean to anthropomorphize on them, but I know we're not supposed to do that. Um, But I, I have a little bit more, I'm a little bit more in tune with 
that population of pronghorn now. And I get even more excited when I get my first shot of them coming up through the big hole and knowing that that migration is happening again, another year coming by. Yeah. It probably adds a whole nother layer to that valley too, just seeing it sort of in a different light. Absolutely. Yes. It's just, you know, a little bit more knowledge on a finer scale and, um, and like anything, I mean, the more you know about something, the the more interest you have and concern for good conservation. Yeah. Um, okay, my second question, I think this is my last one. So has this sparked any other, I know you mentioned you have eight years left until you retire. So has this sparked an interest in doing this kind of project again, or are any of your colleagues excited and wanting to do this in other regions of the state or for other species? So the the pronghorn, that's a good question. The pronghorn project um, is actually occurring in eight other populations across Montana. So it's this beautiful statewide effort. Um, and the way it came about was, you know, the area biologists, my counterparts in these other areas, we all kind of arrived at the same desire for more information around the same time and just work together to put together this uh, study plan and then, um, you know, present it on up through the rankings in the wildlife division with FWP and we're able to get the funding and, and get this project off the ground. So, uh, so I've got, you know, eight other colleagues across the state who are doing the same thing with the same questions and have that same level of intense interest to learn a little bit more, um, you know, knowledge for knowledge sake, but also because we recognize we probably could be doing better um, in the management and conservation of the species if we had this additional knowledge. Um, so, you know, there's always that. And as biologists, we all, you know, we all got into this because we love wildlife and, and um, you know, we want to be out there doing that. We don't want to be sitting in front of our computer. Right. <laughs> And um, so I'm excited to do the second half of this trek uh, this summer, in addition to another one of those offshoots of, you know, the bus stop theory that I talked about. Um, there's another um, offshoot to summer range that uh, my colleague and Dylan, Jesse Newby, and I have been talking about um, doing that trek this summer as well. Um, and I, also Jesse DeVoe, who is um, the, one of the major project uh, technicians on this pronghorn project and has been doing a whiz-bang job keeping us all up at the data. You know, the deeper I get into my professional career, the more convinced I am that an area wildlife biologist might be the best job ever. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, like all good jobs. Nothing's you know, perfect. Definitely. <laughs> right. Nothing's perfect. There's an excellent component to it. And that's what keeps us all going. But then there's a certain reality to some of it, too, sure. <laughs> which is not as we we don't do podcasts on that part of our job. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> that's funny. Um, Becca, anything else? No, no, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much, Dana. Oh, thank you, ladies. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything you wanted to mention that we haven't discussed yet? 
no, just keep up the great work that you all are doing as well. I love, you know, that you're out there and you are encouraging women to get outdoors and feel comfortable out there and push their envelopes and go on adventures and hunt and and you're doing it all for the right reason. So thank you. My pleasure. It's the second greatest job. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, okay, it's time for our weekly closer, uh, hits and misses. The question, Vanna, is what have you been aiming for and how did it go? And I'm going to toss it to Becca first. Okay, well, I have two big hits. Uh, one is more exciting than the other. And I'll say that one second. But the first one is that I started grad school this week. Um, That's right. Yay. Yeah. Congratulations. Idaho's, yeah, thank you. They're uh, natural resources master's program so I get to keep living in salmon and doing my day job while taking classes in the evening so I'm very excited about that excellent Um, the second super exciting thing was when I was walking my dog on Wednesday we ran into a barred owl the (gasps) b-a-r-r-e-d which is a new one for me to see I've heard them but I've never actually seen one in person so it stopped me in my tracks I grabbed the dog threw him in the car, ran home, grabbed my DSLR camera, drove back and walked around until I found the owl again and got some really great photos. So that was the the high point, I think, of my year so far. It's <laughs> oh, exciting. Mm. Yeah, um, they're really, really pretty birds. Can you describe them? They're big and quiet and they have these big black eyes that look almost like soulless black pits. But... <laughs> Um, yeah, it was grayish. Like I almost thought it was a great gray owl, but great grays have those bright yellow eyes. Um, and it was out around 4.30 PM. So when it was still light out, which is really neat to see an owl out and about in the daytime. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. I can't wait to see the pictures. Yeah. Yeah. I'll send it to you. Cool. Vanna, what have you been aiming for and how did it go? I was aiming for successfully smoking rainbow trout, and it went deliciously. Yes. How did you smoke <laughs> I them? Think, um, soak them in a brine with brown sugar and salt, and then you have to let them uh, sit for, I let mine sit for almost a day, so they get kind of sticky, and then put them in my little cheap smoker, and, um, and I don't know, maybe about four hours and pull them out. And gosh, they have been delicious. I think I have two out of 10 fillets left. I've been eating them all week. (laughs) Yeah. So it, it, that one worked well. Last time it it was a miss. This one was a hit. Ooh, what was different? Oh, I, um, I think I figured out how to work my smoker a little bit better than I did the last time. It was new to me last time and I kind of loved it. So. Yeah, Yay. but my chickens ate the fish last time, so yes. it didn't get wasted. <laughs> Nothing goes to waste. <laughs> right. That's fantastic. Um, so my hit, I guess it's been a it's been a a uh, hit that we've been working on for the last several months with Artemis. But we got uh, in the middle of last year, we got a grant from the National Shooting Sports Foundation to pull together a training for women hunters and anglers who are interested in building their capacity as leaders serving on boards for nonprofit organizations or uh, looking towards serving on a, a state commission board. And so we are really in the process where we're 
crafting the specifics of what those trainings will include and look like. Um, and it's been a real hit to think deeply about that and to connect with people in our community, the sporting community, who are doing such good work in this area. Um, and I'm super excited for that training, which we are planning on offering in February and look forward to launching the specific save the date and registration information soon. Um, but when we talk about that portion of Artemis's mission, uh, which is supporting and amplifying the participation of women in leadership roles in conservation, uh, this is just a really, really exciting project to work on and to see all the pieces coming together recently has been a big hit. So. Yay. That's excellent. Good yeah. for you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, what's that, Becca? Oh, no, go ahead. Um, and then before we uh, close out, I want to remind our listeners that we are currently accepting ambassador applications for our 2022 cohort. So we'll link to that in our show notes. If this is something you're interested in, please uh, take a look at the application, take a look at the role description, shoot us an email if you have any questions. Um, our ambassadors uh, are a really integral and important part of our community, and we one of the highlights of my job is is connecting with women across the country and supporting their growth as um, hunters and anglers, as conservationists, as community builders. So if you're interested in joining us, check out that application. Vanna, it's delightful as always, and I'm serious about helping you build your house and um, <laughs> continuing to remove fences <laughs> with you and um, learning, maybe getting together with you for some liver preparation. <laughs> Excellent. I welcome you on any of those adventures. Absolutely. Yes. And thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you all and tell you a little bit about that pronghorn trek. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. And you will have to come point now in the fall once you're done with the second half. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We'll give you an update. Yeah. Or you it... could just come along and then you all can give the update. <laughs> Here again, I feel like I should say, be careful what you ask for. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I'm serious. If you would like to come, you're more than welcome. I am serious about that. Wonderful. It does sound like an amazing adventure. Great. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. We hope you're having a wonderful week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious and get outside. Thank mm-hmm. you.